Support for the show comes from Mercury. Startups, you don't need to settle for cumbersome banking experiences to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with an effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and saving accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for PropG comes from ServiceNow. Seems everyone is talking about AI. The hype's everywhere. It's writing college essays, running earnings reports, and fabricating my voice so well that I'll no longer need to record podcast ads. Just kidding about the last one. But you know what's not a joke? ServiceNow's ability to put AI to work across your business. With their intelligent platform, you can improve customer experiences, help non-coders to code, accelerate your IT team's productivity, and resolve HR cases faster. So work can actually work better for everyone. So stop the hype and start putting AI to work. Go to servicenow.com slash genai to see why the world works with ServiceNow. Episode 234, 234 is code serving Northeastern Ohio. In 1934, Bonnie and Clyde were ambushed and shot by officers in Louisiana and Alcatraz became a federal prison. Did you hear about the psychic dwarf that escaped from Alcatraz? Word is there's a small medium at large. It's funny when you think about it. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 234th episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, we speak with Dave Meyer, the VP of Data and Analytics at Bigger Pockets, a firm for learning and succeeding in real estate investing. We clearly got them, got that from them. A firm learning and succeeding in real estate investing. Anyways, we discuss with Dave the state of play of U.S. residential and commercial real estate, how to think about investing in various real estate markets, and his predictions for the year ahead. I am fascinated by real estate. If I had it to do all over again, I'm not sure I wouldn't just take every dollar I ever made and put it in real estate. Uh, that a vertical farming of cocaine. Anyways, what is happening? There is a TikTok trend about being a dinkwad couple. Double income, no kids with a dog. And it makes sense. Kids are expensive and getting more expensive. An August 2022 report by the Brookings Institute revealed that it can cost a married middle-income couple with two children more than 300 and $10,000 or an average of $18,000 a year to raise a younger child born in 2015 through age 17. I mean, that's just a shit ton of money, right? If you think about it, say you have three kids, which is the ultimate luxury item in New York. That's the way of saying, like, I, I don't really want three kids, but I thought about having a third such that I could communicate to my friends in Manhattan, daddy's a baller. Anyway, probably not the reason to have kids. 18,000 a year, say eight, it's actually 18,271. Say you have three kids, that's 55,000 a year after tax, what are we talking about? We're talking about 90 or 100K a year just to pay for your kids in, in top-line gross income? I mean, and what do you know? Population is declining. It has gotten crazy expensive to raise kids. That's up 9% from a calculation based on the inflation rate in 2020. Up 9% since just in the last few years. The median household income for families in 2021 was $91,000 and 42000 for non Families. A family household includes non-married couples. So while the dinkwads have their fun on TikTok, this actually points to a larger trend that we've been paying attention to here at Prof G, and that is depopulation, or more specifically, 
what might happen if our nation continues on a trajectory where young people simply aren't having kids? Now, I want to go meta here or, or take the lens back. I like finding an issue where I think the data says something that other people or most people aren't talking about and also is controversial. I like wading in or I should call it touching third rails. One, because I like the attention and controversy and provocation creates heat and attention. And two, if you like to think of as you're a thought leader, and I know that's an arrogant label, but you're willing to go where the data takes you and catalyze a conversation, even if it creates controversy or, you know, you get some hate. By the way, if you're saying something, I mean, if you're talking about your dogs and everyone loves it, okay, that's fine. But if you're talking about, if you have a viewpoint on any economic or societal issue and everyone agrees with you, it means you're not saying anything. You're not saying anything. Anyways, I think the next thing we're thinking about talking about or trying to learn a lot about is depopulation or population decline. Depopulation sounds very scary. Um, population decline. And I think there's a, some really interesting trends. And it also triggers people. People find it very um, controversial. Why is that? We wrote about this the other week in our No Mercy No Mouse newsletter, and it generated a major discussion in our comment section. I think the comments or the number of comments is sort of the indicator of what I look at in terms of success. And I would say two-thirds of the comments were pretty negative or upset or, you know, saying that we got it wrong. And by the way, we get it wrong all the time. That's not impossible. Dozens of people chimed in regarding how it would be amoral to bring more people into the world when we haven't solved the climate crisis or that the Post was implying that the population decline lays at the feet of women who aren't pregnant all of the time. Uh, the former is a myth and the latter is not true. So let's talk about climate change and population increases. It makes sense, and it's somewhat logical to think that the two are correlated, but it's not entirely true. When it comes to climate change, the lifestyle choices of the rich matter more when it comes to saving the planet, not a declining population. A report from Bloomberg explains how the wealthiest people in the world, as in the more than 60 million people earning a $109,000 annual salary, are the greatest source of emissions. It's the lifestyle and energy choices of the wealthy the 1% of the population that are driving climate change, roughly 37% of this cohort lives in, wait for it, the United States. And globally, get this, the top 1% emits about 70 times more carbon compared to the bottom 50%. Where have we had the greatest population increases? In places like China and India. And guess what? On a per capita basis, they emit far less carbon. We like to demonize them and their reliance on coal, and coal is definitely a culprit here, and this is the car, as is things like beef, industrial production of beef, and all kinds of things that we need to do better. Actually, ships produce more carbon than I knew when I did a little bit of research here. So let's talk about population decline and its impact on the environment. Realistically, like what actually happens if we go into population decline? China is now in population decline, and they think at the current rates, by the turn of the century, it'll be 600 million people. I mean, literally population cut in half. India is on the verge, potentially, of going into population decline. What happens when you go into population decline? One, so far, everyone that goes into population decline, their economy declines. Japan and Italy are two examples. Japan started going into population decline years ago, and guess what? They've been in about a 30-year flat to recessionary economy. Italy is not exactly doing well economically. There are only two ways to grow an economy. You either increase productivity or you increase population, and ideally, you have both. So what do you think is going to happen when we put pressure on these nations to move to renewable energy? 
the transfer or the arbitrage or the transition to renewables is expensive. I've never bought this notion that there's a free lunch here. Fossil fuels are the gift that keeps on giving. They are cheap, and there's always going to be a lifestyle and economic arbitrage pulling the shit out of the ground and burning it and putting carbon into the air. It just is a—I think it's a basic economic fact. And as much as we'd like to believe that we're going to get rich transitioning to renewables, and okay— wouldn't that be nice? It's going to be expensive. And unless we acknowledge that and make the requisite investments, I don't think we're ever going to get our arms around climate change. Anyways, what do you think happens when China and India's economy go into a tailspin or go into a slow decline? Do you think they're really going to give a flying fuck about climate change? Do you think you're going to talk them into making the requisite investments in the transition to renewables when their economy goes into a tailspin? No, we need growth. We need more money to pay for the transition to renewables. And the correlation between population increase and um, climate change, I would argue, is a perfect example of correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. We can have population increases and also have the decarbonization or start to address thoughtfully, thoughtfully, the transition to renewables. What do we need to make that transition? We need economic growth. So putting aside climate change, what really needs to be the focal point when we talk about population is the fact that our country needs to make it more appealing for people to have children. Why? Because it's not only about population decline. It's about population denigration. What do I mean by that? And I realize that's a terrible word. Here's the bottom line. Productivity peaks at 40. About 40% of all government spending goes to the support of seniors. And what happens? Look at Japan. When there's not enough young people to pay for these programs, you have to cut investments in other social services. You have to cut investments in R&D. You have to cut investments in infrastructure. You have to cut investments in economic growth. The reality is, and we don't like to say this because it's ageist, seniors are not as productive. And guess what? We have way more unproductive seniors than we used to have. So what could we do? What could we do? We could retrain our seniors. We could move back Social Security payments. But even that means testing and extending the age at which you're eligible for Social Security. When you do the numbers, as our editor Jason Stavers pointed out, it really doesn't save a lot of money. We need to be less ageist. We need to better embrace and better accept and create more productive roles for our seniors in the workplace. But the reality is, if we are on this trajectory, what are we going to have? In the U.S., at the turn of the century— we will have six times as many people over the age of 80, and we're going to have half as many kids under the age of five. And let's just give a nod to youth right now. Who wins Grammy Awards? Who are the greatest artists? What Nobel Prize winners in economics, what do they get their Nobel Prizes for? Almost universally, work they did in their PhD programs in their 20s. Who makes the greatest art typically? Who starts the most valuable companies in the world? Who started Apple? Who started Microsoft? Who started Meta? Who started Google? Oh, wait, let me think. People in their 40s, 50s, 60s? No, people in their 20s. Who fights our wars? And quite frankly, who has babies? Young people. If we don't have at least population stability, we're going to have economic decline. And people immediately associate population growth with negative things. That, oh, this capitalist consumptive culture that you're talking about, Scott, and or somehow advocating for an increase in population is somewhat misogynistic? No, it's not. Let me be clear. Nobody has an obligation to have kids. And you can be happy without kids, and you should get to make that choice. You have domain over your body. You have domain over these lifestyle choices. And also, I want to acknowledge 
a lot of the studies show that people without kids are actually happier than people that have kids. What am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that as a government, as a society, if we see that youth is a key component of a productive society, and we also acknowledge what is happening here, that the ratio of young people to old people is going to create tremendous externalities and unintended consequences. And the question is, well, okay, we can't shame people. We can't mandate them into having children. Here's an idea. How do we make it more appealing if they decide to have kids or if they decide to have more kids? What's one of the reasons I didn't have three kids? I had two was because I was economically strained and anxious about the prospect of having another kid that was going to cost me a third of a million dollars. So what do we need to do? One, I don't believe in universal basic income, but I do believe in universal basic child tax credits. And that is simply put, just as we did through the pandemic, we were able to eliminate 90% of child poverty through a child tax credit. And then what do you know? What do you know? It doesn't get renewed in the new infrastructure bill, which was, in my opinion, an absolute crime. We need substantial child tax credits. We need to make it easier for people to have kids. We need to make it affordable for people who decide that they want to have children. What else do we need to do? We need to give more opportunity to young people in the form of access to education, figure out a way to uh, stop this nimbious bullshit culture such that housing prices come down and offer more affordable mortgage rates to young people so they have a chance at actually buying a house. What else do we need to do? Tax rate policy. It's skewed towards old people. What are the two biggest tax deductions, mortgage interest rate and long-term capital gains? Why do old people like me who own stocks get to pay lower tax rates than young people who make all of their money actually working? We need one tax rate similar to Reagan, and we need to lower taxes specifically on young people. Why on earth is minimum wage not 25 bucks an hour? Why on earth is anyone under who makes less than $50,000 paying any income taxes? In 2018, the New York Times surveyed more than 1,800 men and women ages 20 to 45 on why they're having fewer kids and their ideal number. And two-thirds cited that childcare is too expensive. For God's sakes, how can we not have like every goddamn mature nation in this world inexpensive or affordable childcare? That doesn't make me a socialist. It makes me a fucking human that wants other people to have the option to have kids. And and it's decided that kids shouldn't have higher blood pressure, which they do when they grow up in poverty. And 54% want, desperately want more time with the children they already have. Of those who said they didn't want children or weren't sure, a third, or 36%, said they wanted more leisure time. And 34% said it was because they hadn't found a partner. They hadn't found a partner. But the notion that somehow the future is terrible and you have some sort of moral obligation not to have kids— the notion that, in fact, the climate will only heal itself if we go into population decline, that's just bullshit. The data doesn't reveal that. More people, more innovation. If you have 10 kids, right, one or two end up being a drawn society, five or six are good citizens, and one or two come up with great ideas that make the world better for those 10 kids. Every innovation, if you look at prosperity, if you look at Nobel Prize winners, if you look at philanthropy, if you look at peace, if you look at a decline in the number of people who die at the hands of other humans, it's all correlated to one thing, population growth, innovation, communication, empathy, and families who decide that life is worth a damn, that they build relationships. The elemental foundation of any society is relationships. We need to give young people more opportunity to find each other, fall in love, make mentors, and also should they desire, should they desire, the opportunity to have a family. We'll be right back for our conversation with Dave Meyer. 
Support for Prop G comes from Fundrise. You know the adage, buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash PropG. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Support for our show comes from Sonos. Usually when we read ads for the show, I get a whole page of talking points they want me to hit. But get this, Sonos sends me their latest portable speaker, Move 2, and no script. They just want me to share with you what I honestly think of it. And after listening to the speaker, I get why Sonos is so confident that I'd have good things to say. It's fantastic. It's incredible that this kind of fidelity and acoustics and sound comes from such a little device. I mean, it really packs a punch. And also, I have been buying Sonos for 10 or 15 years now. I know the CEO. I know people uh, that work there. They're just good people and a nice company, and they make an outstanding product. The battery life of Move 2 is so good, giving you up to 24 hours of playback. And because it's weather and drop resistant, you can bring it anywhere. Just think of all the places you could listen to this podcast. What a thrill. Seriously, you won't believe how good I sound on this speaker. Every stream counts, people. Come on, come on, invest in this relationship. To learn more about Move2 and other Sonos speakers, visit Sonos.com. That's S-O-N-O-S.com. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Dave Meyer, the VP of Data and Analytics at Bigger Pockets. Dave, where does this podcast find you? In Amsterdam, where I live. Okay, so we're here to talk about real estate. And it's weird to ask you questions about American real estate from Amsterdam. My understanding is you, you're, you're very knowledgeable. So I, I love to just start off, and I realize this is a difficult question because we're, it's, real estate is very market-specific, and we'll talk about markets. But... Give us the state of play in U.S. residential real estate. Yeah, I think what you said first is true, that everything will be really different. And the last few years where every housing market behaved in a singular way is very abnormal. And so we are probably going to return to this normal bifurcation of markets where some perform well, some don't perform that well. But on a national basis, what we're seeing is that all of the fundamental drivers of price appreciation over the last few years are now reverting a little bit, and we're entering a correction in the residential space. I'm deliberately not saying a crash because I don't believe that housing prices in the United States are going to crash on a national level. But the simplest fact is that housing has become unaffordable. We're at about a 40-year low in terms of housing affordability, and that's not sustainable. So one way that affordability can improve is housing prices come down, and we're already starting to see that happen nationwide. What markets are being hit the hardest? Generally speaking, the pandemic darlings, you know, the markets that grew as quickly at the fastest during the pandemic are the ones that are coming down the most. So Austin, 
Reno, Las Vegas, Seattle, Boise are some of the hottest markets, uh, were some of the hottest markets during the pandemic, and they're coming down the most. And on the other side, you know, some of the markets that were pretty slow and steady or more were growing in a more traditional pattern over the last few years are still performing pretty well. Those are markets like Chicago and Boston and Philadelphia. So let me outline, let me give you a thesis and you tell me where I've got it right or wrong. And that is, uh, so I'm a real estate investor and I'm really excited to buy real estate because it's, I bought a bunch in 2010 and 2011 for investment purposes and, and that's worked out really well. And I'm waiting, not for a crash, but for, you know, a rationalization. And the way I would describe the market right now, or my impression of the market, is that sellers haven't gotten the memo. And that is, there's a bit of a standoff. And, and that is, okay, so you have interest rates go up 300 bips, which makes a couple looking for a house, they used to be able to afford a $750,000 house in terms of monthly payments, now they can afford four hundred fifty. dollars I mean, it's just, there's some real headwinds. But people always anchor off the highs. They say, okay, Bob sold his house down the road for X, so I should get X. And they realize, now, at some point, they're going to realize the market's changed dramatically. But I think the market's going to get much better for buyers and much worse for sellers in the next six months. Where do I have that wrong? I think on a national level, you have that pretty close to spot on. I think there are a lot of areas where sellers are not willing to accept lower prices or they're just avoiding putting their house on the market altogether. We're seeing this phenomenon where new listings, basically the amount of homes that are put on to the MLS for sale, are down 20% year over year. And people just don't want to sell into this environment. And that has sort of created this environment where prices aren't falling as fast as they probably would be in a different type of environment. But I do think eventually sellers will get the memo. And despite all the media attention to investors and Wall Street entering the real estate market, about 70% of homes are owned by homeowners, just people who are living in their primary residence. And eventually people they sell, they move, they do it for reasons that are not purely financially motivated. And I think we're starting to see that now where people are accepting rates in the 6% and 7%. And I do think eventually people are going to resume their lives. They can't hold off on selling forever. And that will probably push inventory up. It will push days on market up. And that will eventually lead to declines in prices. And do you predict that'll be back half of 23? Is it already happening? What's the timing? If I realize no one has a crystal ball here, but what would you guess? What would be your best guess as to when this happened? Yeah, I think the first half of 23 is going to be a lot of the same. I, you know, I just think there's too much uncertainty in Fed policy and mortgage rates right now for anyone to really do anything definitively. Depending on what happens with mortgage rates, I do think we could see the second half of the year see a bit of a slide, but I still don't think it's going to be anything worse than, let's say, 3 to 8% declines on a seasonally adjusted basis for the country as a whole. And right now, we're actually seeing mortgage rates have dropped a lot, and that's actually picked up activity in the housing market. So it's actually probably slowed down the eventuality of prices going down just by a few more months. So say it happens in the latter half of the year. Let's talk about markets. What markets do you think offer the best opportunities for long-term cash flow and appreciation? Yeah, so I think they're, they're actually opposite. So if you look at historical patterns, let's say from the Great Recession to the beginning of the pandemic, 
there are basically two types of markets. There are markets that traditionally offer great cash flow, and then there are markets that traditionally appreciate faster than others. And if you look at outliers, like the outliers for great appreciation are outliers for poor cash flow. If you think of San Francisco or Seattle or Denver, where I primarily invest, those are places that have exploded in terms of appreciation and, and property prices. But in terms of cash flow, they're towards the bottom. Whereas the other, you know, the other side of the equation is some markets that might have declining population or less rapid economic growth, you see better cash flow. Those are markets often in the Midwest. Um, cities like Indianapolis or Columbus, Ohio come to mind where offer great cash flow um, over the long run, but probably don't offer those appreciation potential. As investors, we often look for things, what I call like a hybrid city, which offers a little bit of both. And for those, I do think they're primarily located in the Southwest right now. You look at markets, a lot of them in Florida, Tampa, for example, Atlanta, Nashville, places in North Carolina have been, are still relatively affordable. And I think affordability is really going to drive real estate prices over the next couple of years. They're relatively affordable, but the rent to price ratio, which is basically a proxy for cash flow, basically how much rent can you buy for your price, um, is still pretty reasonable in those areas. And I think given the population growth in those markets, you'll probably see that continue into the future. So give me your two or three markets you're most bullish on for, and, and what are the factors that make them attractive markets? I think Tampa is one of them. You just see a lot of businesses relocating to Tampa right now and bringing really high paid jobs and a diversified economy that isn't as you know, roller coaster is somewhere like Las Vegas or some of these markets that are all dependent on a single industry. Uh, Tampa has strong healthcare, it has strong finance, the population is exploding. And so I think that's a really good area. We also just see that people tend to like to live in nice places. That's been one of the big trends in terms of migration patterns over the last couple of years. I really like uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as a really strong market because it also has strong banking, strong insurance, finance sectors, um, well-diversified economy. You know, when it comes to real estate investing, you know, it's not the same as stock investing where you're looking at all these complex things. It's really not that complicated. You want to look for wage growth. You want to look for job growth and population growth. It's just trying to identify an imbalance in supply and demand. And so you look at Tampa, you look at Charlotte, I think those are good ones, um, Atlanta. And then I'll just give uh, some smaller markets like Columbia, South Carolina is also one that stands out. So let's, uh, just a quick left turn. It feels like there's a lot more dislocation and stress and possibly opportunity in commercial. Have you given any thoughts to investing in commercial real estate? Oh yeah, I, I invest quite a lot in commercial real estate. I think commercial real estate is poised for a very significant decline. Or I said in residential real estate, which I'll categorize as anything four units or below. Uh, that's basically how it's categorized in terms of financing. If you look at commercial real estate, which is valued in a totally different way than residential real estate, it is very likely, in my opinion, that it's going to decline. And that's because commercial real estate is valued like a business, right? You're looking at how much cash flow you're essentially buying. 
And for years, commercial real estate, the way it's been trading has been at very, very high valuations. Cap rates are, are extremely low. But if you look at the traditional spread between cap rates and interest rates, they, it suggests that cap rates need to increase pretty dramatically, maybe 100, 150 basis points. And that doesn't sound like a lot because cap rates right now are at about 5%. But if they go up, let's say, 100 basis points to 6%. That means it's a 20% decline in commercial real estate values. And that applies to multifamily, that applies to office, to industrial. So I do think that there is going to be a bit of a reckoning in commercial real estate over the next year or so. And buying opportunities will probably be very abundant in the next, you know, probably about a year from now. What do you think, can anything be done with these huge buildings in urban centers? What, what can be done? It's a great question. And I actually had someone on our, our podcast recently to talk about this. And it's so tempting, right? You drive around and you see these commercial buildings that are just empty. But unfortunately, I had an estimate recently from a, a, a guest on our podcast. It's the CEO of Fundrise, Ben Miller. He said about you know, maybe 10% of office spaces could be repurposed into residential. Did you say it's 10? just the floor plan. Yeah. It's just not that good because especially plumbing apparently is the big issue because unless people want to go into a college dorm style and share a bathroom, uh, you know, it's just not set up the way that you would need to for a lot of residential. And the zoning is different. I do think one thing that might change is municipalities might be willing to work with developers to change the zoning in, in case that we need this because it is just seems like a logical thing to do. There is a lack of affordable housing. There's a housing shortage in the United States. Yet at the same time, we have all this vacant commercial space. It just seems prime for redevelopment. Not my area of expertise, but it's it seems harder than than I would wish it would be. Let's shift to interest rates. To understand real estate, you have to have some insider or viewpoint on interest rates. What do you think happens to mortgage rates over the next year? Yeah, they, they've actually fallen quite a lot. They peaked back in uh, November for now at about 7%. Now they're down to about 6%. I think it's really interesting. And there's basically two scenarios that can happen. And one is if the economy avoids a recession, which a few months ago I didn't really think was all that likely, but is now looking more and more plausible that that this, you know, quote unquote soft landing might happen. In that case, I think there is a chance that mortgage rates actually go back up from where they are because the Fed, given the labor market, might continue to raise rates. And we might see a federal funds rate above 5%. You know, the terminal rate might end up at 5.5. And the traditional spread between uh the Can you describe fund. what the terminal rate is for our listeners? Sure, yeah. So the terminal rate is basically where the Federal Reserve will keep their federal funds rate uh, before eventually either raising it again or pausing it. But the Fed basically releases something called the Summary of Economic Projections. And for the last couple of months, they've been saying they think they're going to pause around 5%. You know, given where things are going, if inflation picks back up or the economy remains super hot, the Fed might go higher than that, and that could push mortgage rates back up. The other scenario is that we enter a recession, and that actually would probably be the best thing for mortgage rates if you're hoping for mortgage rates to go down. I know that's sort of a subjective thing. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that mortgage rates are not tied to the federal funds rate. It is tied to 
most closely to the yield on a 10-year U.S. Treasury. They move in lockstep. They almost have a perfect correlation. And although the yields on bonds have gone up this year, when you enter a recession, it puts downward pressure on bond yields. You know, people globally flock to the safety of the U.S. dollar. That pushes downward pressure on yields, and that brings mortgage rates down. And so if we enter a recession, which, you know, I'm not an economist, but 70% of economists say that we are likely to enter a recession this year. If that happens, it will push mortgage rates down, which I think will probably cause the housing market to bottom uh, and then pick up activity, which could actually bring the U.S. out of a recession. We'll be right back. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for the Prop G Show comes from NetSuite. As a business owner, you have numbers jumping around your head all the time. Some of them matter, like how many employees do we need by the end of 2024, while some of them don't, like how many episodes of Love Island can my DVR hold? Your job is to separate the numbers that do matter from the ones that don't. Thankfully, NetSuite has just three numbers that you need to remember. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash propg. That's netsuite.com slash propg to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash propg. I'm curious about what you think of the high-end luxury, uh, what's considered a kind of a vacation market. So I'll give you an example. Aspen and Nantucket, you know, Napa. What, what do you think of the, the durability there? I, I think they're going to come down, if I had to guess. And, and I know every one of those markets is going to be different. But I think particularly in the COVID era, we saw those markets go up so fast in a way that was even faster than metropolitan areas. There's a stat that second home demand went up 90% during the pandemic. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is people just wanted to get out of big cities, right? They didn't want to be in New York or San Francisco. They wanted to go to the nice area where there's a lot of room. But also you just saw that, you know, the wealthy class were so rich during this time. I mean, the stock market was going crazy. People who invested in cryptocurrency were taking money out and rolling it into real estate. Now we've seen that second home demand is down below pre-pandemic levels. So if you just believe in supply and demand, you have to think that that's coming down. The other thing is that 
real estate investors do play a role in these markets, probably more than they do in small markets, because short-term rental investing has exploded in popularity. And some of these markets are attractive to real estate investors and have brought in a lot of people who don't actually have any interest in, in staying or living there. And we're seeing an oversupply in a lot of short-term rental markets as well. So I think we're going to see a pullback on demand from both investors and second home buyers in these luxury markets. I don't think they're they're going to go down, probably not to pre-pandemic levels, but I do think they're likely to see more significant declines than you see on a national average. What about Miami? Miami's weird. It's like a yeah, really weird, weird market where it's holding up particularly well, probably because everyone in New York, I, I'm, I'm from New York originally, everyone from New York with a finance business is just moving to Miami right now. And so there's a ton of money, private equity money moving down there. And although it's one of the least affordable, most rent burdened cities in the entire country, it's holding up right now. I do think it will go down a bit, but um, for major metro areas, it's one of the strongest relative housing markets right now. Talk a little bit about the California market. I'll get Los Angeles and the Bay Area. Yeah, so both of them are coming down. Bay Area is actually leading the way in terms of price declines, year-over-year price declines right now, San Jose and San Francisco. That's a complicated one. I think a lot of it has to do with remote work there. You know, people used to bear those incredibly high rents and incredibly high home prices because they needed to be near the economic engine that is San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Now, a lot of these tech companies have said that they could stay away and people are saying, I'll take my San Francisco salary and I'll move to Nashville and I'll basically get a 40% raise. So I think this the San Francisco area is going to be really interesting. Um, and California in general has just seen you know, people, I think, over-exaggerate it, but it has seen a pretty significant decline in population over the last couple of years, which is strange. It's had a net population loss of like 300,000 people, which doesn't bode well for a quick recovery. But I also kind of think people always bet against New York City. They always bet against San Francisco and California. And those cities always come back. So I think eventually they will, but they probably might take a longer time to rebound than some of the other uh, major metros. So, and I promise this will be my last question, but uh, you live in Europe. Give us a couple cities in Europe that you're bullish on, a couple cities you're bearish on, and why? It's really not my uh, area of expertise. Come I don't on, study Dave. it the same way. You're in but real I just estate. love Portugal. I'm just going to say Portugal in general. Lisbon, great city, very affordable. They uh, have made it very uh, favorable for expats, your other Europeans and Americans to invest there. So you're seeing a lot of money. They have something called the golden visa program where you can basically buy a, an EU passport over the course of five years. And so you see money specifically to invest in real estate. And so you see a lot of capital flying into Portugal. Dave Meyer is the VP of data and analytics at Bigger Pockets, the host of the On the Market podcast and the author of Real Estate by the Numbers. He joins us from his home in Amsterdam. Dave, I love talking about this. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Scott. Algebra of happiness. So I just want to be honest here. This is going to involve some serious name dropping, but um, I drop names because I'm desperate for your approval. Uh, last night, I'm in New York. I came from... 
uh, Miami or came from London via Miami. Still a little bit jet lag, feeling a little bit down. I don't know why. I think I talked about it last week. But anyways, enough about my my mild depression. And I went on uh, my podcast co-host from Pivot, Kara Swisher, was here. And we went on Stephanie Rule last night. I was going to go on Stephanie's show, The 11th Hour, which I really like. And I'm a huge fan of Stephanie and would, and would call her a friend. Um, yeah, I was going to go on later this week to talk about economics. And Kara said, let's go on together. We've been doing more stuff together. And the episode was on State of the Union. I know fucking nothing about the State of the Union. And not only that, I don't care. I think I've watched maybe three of them in my lifetime, but they wanted to have a panel. And I was awful. I had nothing to say. I mean, I had literally nothing to say. And on the way home, I'm beating myself up because I'm usually good on TV. I know my shit usually, and I usually can a good twist a phrase or turn a phrase. I'm like, fuck. I was just angry at myself, just like really going inward. Like, Jesus Christ, why did you do this, you idiot? And it was fine. I watched the episode. It was fine. It wasn't that bad. And here's the thing. It goes back to the whole notion of, I mean, by today, no no one even remembers seeing it. It doesn't really matter. And I'm finally at a point in my life where I get over stuff faster because you know what? It's just not, you're going to have so many more opportunities to do things, and everyone that saw the program has forgotten about it. I have forgotten about it, but that's not what this is about. Stephanie Rule, the host of the 11th Hour, this is like 12.45 in the morning. I get a call from Stephanie at 12.45, and I pick it up, and she says, I got the sense you're not doing well. Are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just a little bit jet-lagged and a little bit distracted, and also I was embarrassed. I didn't really have anything, anything interesting to say, and she said, okay, I'm just checking in and and we had a, you know, just a two-minute conversation. But reaching out to people when you sense that they're not doing well or they might be upset, it just makes you feel much closer to that person. It forces you to take pause and say, am I doing all right? And the honest answer is, yeah, I'm just a little bit jet-lagged. But it's such a wonderful expression of concern or care or that I'm thinking about you and I have the confidence to call you. I just would never have done that until I was a much older person. Uh, but when you register that someone isn't doing well, even if you're even if you're getting false signals, to reach out to them just real quick and say, "Are you doing okay?" I think that's such a wonderful way to increase the the bond of friendship. It reflects a lot of confidence on your part. It reflects empathy, and the fastest way to get someone to like you, the fastest way to get someone to care about you, is to care about them. And a lot of us do care about people, but we don't express it. And an easy way to express it is if you sense that someone isn't on their game or isn't doing as well, just to reach out a quick call, even if it's at 1230 and I say, are you doing all right? It'll make you feel closer to them. This episode was produced by Caroline Chagrin. Our associate producer is Jennifer Sanchez. Drew Burroughs is our technical director. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prof G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Saturday with No Mercy, No Malice, as read by George Hahn, and on Monday with our weekly market show. Daddy's getting in trouble. Daddy's getting in trouble. Um, okay.